Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we're going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. Striving for greatness, for perfection, for an edge on life is what got me here. Now, greatness, perfection, and any sort of edge besides maybe the edge of the razor in my bathroom cupboard seem far from sight, out of reach. Maybe the edge of the roof, the edge of the sidewalk. Sorry, I hate to get hung up on the edge thing. I'm not suicidal, I promise. At the hospital, they ask you if you're suicidal, and if you say yes, they ask if you have a plan. If you say yes, you know exactly how you'll close the book on your life. The alarm bells go off. They never asked me the second question, because I told them, quite honestly, that I was not suicidal. I do have a plan, though. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, just in case I need it. I don't ever see myself becoming suicidal, but I may need to die. If that time comes, I probably won't have the energy to make a plan. I like to be prepared. When the time comes, I'll just skip ahead to the end. So what got me here? How did the pursuit of greatness, perfection, and an edge on life land me with nothing but a broken love life, unemployment, and an immaculate death routine? A phone call from my oldest friends, Leo and Stan. A phone call that would kick off the events that permanently changed my life. A phone call that might, in the end, lead to the end of my life. We'll see. Leo and Stanley Pritchard are two brothers who moved in next door to me when I was 12. Leo was 13, Stan 11. Me being right between them, I was equally friendly with both. None of us were particularly social creatures. We preferred to be outdoors, socializing with wild animals and critters that wanted nothing to do with us. You would have found us out in the prairie or down in the creek any afternoon. After school, we'd always meet up and go exploring. It was the healthiest procrastination I've ever done. I always found I could write a better paper, calculate more accurately, read with better focus after a few hours of climbing hills and trees and chasing birds and frogs and bugs. If I tried doing homework before going outside, as my parents only tried once or twice to make me do, the results were as hopeless as my life has turned out to be. Over the summers, I would often camp in the Pritchard's backyard in a tent their dad helped us set up. Once Leo was old enough to drive, our parents allowed us to go to the nearest state park and camp on weekends. Camping became our thing, 
The excitement of catching frogs before they jumped in the stream had long since faded, but the tingly nerves brought on by strange noises in the woods at night sufficiently replaced them. Did we drink? When we could get a bottle of hair-curling vodka or a six-pack, of course. Did we smoke? Not cigarettes, no. Did we get high? Just one time. Honestly, just once. We all agreed the marijuana dulled the natural high of being out in no man's land with no protection from the elements and animals except for an easily terrible millimeter of water-resistant fabric. Plus, a park ranger caught the scent. We had already smoked up all the weed and hid the evidence before he found us, but he threatened to kick us out of the park anyway. The Pritchards and I grew up, and, like most best friends, went our separate ways. For a while, we still managed to link up and camp together. The monthly trips to state or even national parks became seasonal, then annual. Then I didn't hear from the Pritchard brothers for nearly five years. I'm sorry to say I all but forgot about them. I landed a mid-level job at a big-name cell service provider. A cute sales rep caught my eye. She was fit. I was too ashamed of myself to ask her out. I had grown soft and round and slow. I didn't feel worthy of her. She looked great. She looked perfect. Her fitness gave her an edge. Rather than feel sorry for myself, I immediately bought a membership to a local health club. I started lifting weights. I discovered the wonders of the sauna. I traded limp fat for firm muscle. My confidence grew along with the tissues of my growing muscles. Maybe the cute, fit rep would have gone out with me before. Maybe not but now I knew I was ready to find out. I looked great. Not quite perfect. But I had an edge. I thought we were meant for each other. Our first date was a disaster, and if we hadn't been brought together by fate, I don't think I ever would have heard from her again. My GPS took us to the wrong restaurant. I guess it's my fault for inputting the wrong address. We lost the reservation I had made because we were late, we ended up going to the health food store and eating packaged salads from the deli counter at my apartment, which I hadn't bothered to clean up at all. But she and I were meant to be, until we weren't. Fate is a fickle thing, and we all pay the price for its indecisive nature. I suppose I was happy with my job and my relationship and the humble little apartment I came to share with my destined mate. I, the boy who once couldn't sit still until I'd spent hours outdoors, forgot all about parks and forests and streams and lakes and camping and friends. I continued to chase greatness, perfection, and edge at the health club. But then my phone rang. The call bounced across towers built by my employer, carrying a voice from the past, from another life. The voice belonged to Leo Pritchard, and he wanted to go camping. Leo had triangulated a spot equidistant from Stan and I, where the three of us could meet up and spend a weekend in the woods. I told him I didn't have a tent anymore. He laughed and told me to buy one. I told him I didn't have good clothes for the outdoors anymore. He told me that meant I needed to go get some. Consider this a wake-up call, old friend, Leo had told me. It sounds like you've isolated yourself from the planet. It's time to reconnect. With the planet? I asked. Yes and with old friends. Remember how happy we were? Leo asked. I told him I was happy now. He told me I didn't sound happy, and I told him he didn't either. I was only being curt, 
but I accidentally stumbled upon Leo's motivation to orchestrate a weekend away from modernity. Leo had not found a good job. Fate had not gifted Leo a soulmate. He had found a soul-sucking partner at his mind-numbing temp job, but nothing more. For Leo, the hope of happiness existed out in nature, or it didn't exist at all. He had moved away, but had not moved on from those cold nights in the tent, wondering what snapped that twig or crunched those leaves. Leo told me Stan was already on board, but I called him anyway just to be sure. Leo's not doing great, man, Stan told me. I think he really needs this. I don't really feel like going away for a whole weekend, but he's my brother. I don't know what else to do. I told him I felt the same way. Stan said, well, look, Leo's my blood, but he's just the kid next door to you. If you can't do it, or, I mean, don't feel like you have to. I thanked him and told him I didn't think I did want to, but I asked him not to tell Leo that. Not yet. I wasn't ready to commit either way. As the weeks passed, a once familiar excitement ran in my veins like static. I had been sitting on the part of me that desired the outdoors, and that phone call was the small shift in posture that woke up the old limb. It tingled so bad it hurt, like the nerves in a numb foot, but I took pleasure in the discomfort. I hadn't realized it, but I had become safe. I had adopted a routine and adapted to an environment of comfort. My hours spent in the health club started to feel silly. As I lifted the same steel bar over and over, I started to imagine it was a fallen tree I had to move to clear a path. As I ran on the treadmill, I started closing my eyes and imagining crusty dirt under my shoes, a wet breeze across my face. I made the treadmill incline so I could imagine a hill dotted with trees. I wondered what kind of an edge I could really obtain within the walls and air conditioning of the club. I called Stan back and asked if he had told Leo I didn't want to go yet. He told me he had waited like I had asked him to. Good, I said, because I'm in. Let's do it. Before I left, I had to purchase a new tent, sleeping bag, jacket, pants, boots, gloves, first aid kit, flashlight, and backpack. I also bought a buck knife. You can't ever be too careful in the woods. I also had to break up with my girlfriend. I didn't know I had to do that. It wasn't in the plan. But it turned out our relationship couldn't handle me going away for a whole weekend. Two whole days. I told her about the camping trip with my old friends, and she told me I couldn't do it. I told her she shouldn't tell me what I can and can't do. We were both adults. She told me she couldn't believe I wanted to spend so much time away from her. I told her she could come, knowing she wouldn't. She told me I could find a new girlfriend, knowing I wouldn't. I told her I would. She called my bluff. So much for fate. You might think I would have become depressed after the breakup with my soulmate, but the truth is, it felt great. Not so much losing her, but being free. We became I, and I was me again. And I was driving to some remote forest to meet up with my best friends in a beefy pickup truck I had traded my sporty little coupe for. That car would have been useless in the woods. I was all in. This throwback to adolescence was reminding me of who I had been and showing me just how far from that person I had grown. I missed the old me. Leo and Stan were exactly how I remembered them, except Leo was sadder and had a quarter-inch beard neatly hedging his cheeks. 
Stan's clean-shaven jaw still made him look handsome, even though his eyes were a little too far apart. We all showed up in variations of the same Columbia jacket. Leo brought a GPS unit that would have still functioned if we had dropped it off a cliff. He told us he found it at an army surplus store. It led us away from our cars, up a hill, then across a ridge before finally taking us down the other side. There was no path to follow, no trail. No sign mankind had ever traipsed through this area. The trees around us were bare up to the first 20 or 30 feet, then sprouted green at the top like enormous stalks of broccoli. They were spaced far enough apart to allow us to see for hundreds of yards in every direction. I asked Leo why we couldn't just find a spot at the base of the hill to set up camp. We could still hike afterwards, but we wouldn't have to do so with all our gear strapped to our backs. Leo explained that he had scoped out a place already and said it wasn't too much further. I was grateful for the thousands of steps I'd committed to the treadmill. I could hear Stan panting behind me. I felt a little sore, but my breathing remained steady. Leo stopped us after about an hour. He slipped his pack off his back. I asked if this was our spot as I dropped mine too. No, we're not quite there yet, but look at this, Leo said. He was staring at the ground. I arched my back and retracted my shoulder blades, loosening up as I approached him. Stan stayed back to catch his breath. Leo had nearly stepped into a crevice, covered by undergrowth. Where we stood, the fissure was only a few inches wide, but it spread two feet apart further along. How deep do you think it goes? I asked. Leo detached his flashlight from the side of his pack and dropped to his Carhartt-shielded knees. He shone the light into the crack. We both smiled. The crevice was maybe four or five feet deep directly below us, but it traveled at a downhill grade. At its deepest, the ground was maybe six feet down, and where the crevice ended, a giant mouth opened. It's an underground cave, Leo said wondrously. I asked if the cave had been on his map. Leo said it hadn't appeared in any of his research, let alone on any map or the GPS. He said, we might be the first people to ever find this. Leo removed his Columbia jacket to fit into the crevice. Then he had to duck down until he could stand in the deep part. He shone his flashlight much nicer and brighter than the one I had purchased for the trip into the mouth of the cave. It's dark, he said. Obviously. I laughed. Stan breathed normally behind me. No, it's so dark it doesn't make sense, Leo said. It's like the shadows are absorbing my light. It won't go much further than the mouth. I wanted to slip down there to see for myself, but I also didn't. Stan didn't even remove his pack, so I knew he didn't either. I had a feeling much worse than general anxiety about an unknown situation. In the moment, I thought it was just paranoia, but looking back, I know it was more. There were no animal tracks near the crevice, no remnants of past meals, no dung. Nothing seemed to have ever come near it. Not until we stumbled in with all our fancy gear and desires for the long-gone days of our youth. Leo took a step forward. Stan told him to stop. Leo looked back over his shoulder and shrugged. He said, You're probably right. There's no telling what's in there, and if anything happens, we're hours from rescue. That's why I brought the first aid kit, I thought. But some alcohol wipes and gauze wouldn't get us very far if someone broke their leg or got impaled on an underground stalagmite. Or mauled by a bear. What did you say? 
Leo asked. I looked at Stan. Neither of us had said anything. Leo laughed and said there must be a draft in the cave. He must have heard the wind whispering and thought it was us. Stan and I reached in to help Leo climb out. Then we followed the GPS to camp. Leo's selected spot was on a high ledge next to a still lake. He said it was more beautiful than he had even imagined. I asked if he had seen any pictures of it before, and he said no. He had found the spot with satellites and could only see an aerial, partially computer-generated version of the terrain. He hadn't been able to see the wide panorama of trees contrasted by the clear blue sky, or the water so still you could have made a mile-wide ripple with a pebble. We pitched our tents in a triangle, all of the openings facing each other. That way we could still talk and laugh and reminisce, even after it got too cold to sit around the fire. We tucked into our own little caves, with our blankets and sleeping bags and body heat to give us the illusion of comfort. Stan yawned first. His teeth reflected the dying light of the midnight embers. I realized I was tired as well. Leo still seemed alert, probably because he was so far away from his problems and troubles, and he didn't want to waste any of that precious time away, sleeping. I wanted to stay up with him, but I had to sleep. I dreamt of the cave, and I wasn't alone, its mouth open wide, calling me home. I felt more afraid than I have in my life, but I just had to know what might be inside. I woke to the rattle of a zipper, the wispy hiss of skin against canvas. Footsteps stomped and crunched then stopped dead in place. My ears honed in on the rattly breath of a very cold man outside. He sounded afraid. Leo, the cold man shouted. He was Stan. I rolled over far enough to reach my own tense zipper and pulled it down just enough to see out. I saw Stan's profile in orange. I know, we should have doused the embers. Just standing by Leo's open tent in the dark, He probably had to take a leak, I said. Stan jumped two feet in the air, and I laughed, then felt bad. The man was clearly scared. No, no, he's been gone way too long, Stan said. I heard him get out of his tent like half an hour ago. At first, I thought just like you. But the longer it's been, it's been too long now. Way too long. How many times have we done this before? I asked. It's been a while, but Leo knows what he's doing. I'm sure he took... Stan pushed back Leo's dangling tent flap and pointed to the flashlight, the GPS, the cell phone, the radio Leo had left behind. If he was going farther than the next row of trees, he would have taken all of this with him, Stan said. We've got to go look for him. Maybe he's just playing a joke on us. It wouldn't be unlike him, I offered. It wouldn't be unlike the Leo you knew, Stan admonished. Man, things have changed. Leo's not that guy anymore. Look, if I'm being honest, I'm scared he's out there hanging from a tree right now. He seemed fine to me, I said. It's been five years, man. However, Leo seemed to you doesn't mean a damn thing to me. You do not know him anymore. Not like I do. If you did, you'd have gotten yourself out of your damn sleeping bag by now. I wanted to be out of my sleeping bag right away but to move too quickly would be to concede that point to Stan. I knew he was right, but to admit that would also be to admit Leo might be in real danger. From the woods, or from himself. 
You really think he'd drag us all the way out here just to... I didn't need to finish. What I think is that Leo isn't in his right mind and can be... unpredictable. I remembered my dream. Okay, if you want to do something to make yourself feel better or whatever, there's somewhere we could check, I said. That underground cave back there? Stan asked, or sort of suspiciously stated. I told him yeah, and asked how he guessed. I was dreaming about it when I heard Leo get up, he said. I told him I had been dreaming about it when I heard him get up. Weird coincidence. Must have been on all our minds, Stan said. It seems weird that he would have gone back alone and at night, I said, even though I had been the one to suggest looking for Leo there. Like I said, Stan grimaced. Unpredictable. We stole the GPS from Leo's tent and backtracked along the way we had come. No one had thought to mark the crevice to know when we might stumble on it again, but I knew if we retraced our steps, we'd find it. I only hoped we would see it before one of us got swallowed. There seemed to be more sounds in the forest at night. Suddenly the trees were alive with shrieks and hoots and shuffling leaves and wings. On the ground, things disturbed the leaves in shadows our lights couldn't penetrate. I had the buck knife strapped to my waist. It felt ridiculous. I wished it was a gun. The only movement we could see ahead was our own breath vaporizing as it left our noses. Stan wasn't running out of breath this time. He was running on pure adrenaline. At first, Stan called for Leo every couple of minutes, but as the tents disappeared behind us, he chose to stay quiet. The only things that put humans at the top of the food chain are tools we did not have that night. Stan's left hand shot back and blocked me hard enough to push a little air out of my lungs. I asked why we stopped, and he shushed me. Listen, he said. He didn't take his hand off my chest like he was worried I might continue on without him, but I wouldn't have. I was too scared. We heard it together the next time. Leo's voice, hollow and echoey, screaming, Stanley, in the dark. He sounded lost and desperate, maybe hurt. Stan looked into my eyes as if he might find instruction in them. I could only shrug. Leo was his brother. He had made it quite clear that he knew better than I how to handle him. Stan's left hand slipped down the front of my jacket and returned to his own side. He looked at the GPS, and forward we marched. It was my turn to stop Stan next. I grabbed his sleeve as he almost stepped right into the deep end of the crevice. He accidentally dropped the GPS down into it. The glowing screen lit up the mouth of the cave directly beneath our feet. And we heard Leo's voice, clearer but just as distant, screaming for his brother again. We gotta hurry, Stan said. No, I thought. Hurrying is how we'll all end up trapped down there. Hurrying is how we will all end up lost or hurt or dead. Hurrying is pulling out the knife and bleeding to death when you should have left its stabbing blade in the wound. Sometimes, even when it's most important, you can't fight your basic instincts. Stan dropped to his stomach and lowered himself down, I didn't bother suggesting an alternative. My words would have been lost on the desperate brother dangling in the crevice. He dropped. His boots echoed into the cave. He shouted, We're coming, Leo. We. We're coming. The way his voice reverberated in the black cavern made it sound like the voice of God, 
of truth. We are coming. I no longer had a choice. I told Stan to step aside and dropped into the crevice beside him. What Leo had told us earlier about the cave swallowing light could not have been a more apt description. Our flashlights, which had previously shone for a quarter mile through the woods, now only reached a handful of feet into the darkness ahead. Some minerals, Stan said, like coal, can absorb light instead of reflecting it. I hoped he was wrong about the cave being full of coal. If it was, that meant the swirling, smoky shadows ahead of us were made of coal dust. If we went in and filled our lungs with that stuff, I didn't think we would live to see 40. Stan either did not consider this or did not care. He went into the cave. Every cave we had explored together before had been cold and wet. This one was cold, but very dry. There were none of the stalactites or stalagmites one would expect to see in such a place. Those formations are created by dripping water, leaving microscopic minerals behind over decades and centuries and millennia. This cave hadn't enough moisture to drip. This cave was hollow and wide like the inside of a whale. Once we were far enough in, we couldn't see the way out any longer. The shadows, or cancerous dust, prevented our lights from shining beyond our arm's reach. I don't think it was coal dust in the air. I didn't cough. My tongue and throat never felt chalky like I had expected. Stan's voice started to crack and rasp after a while, but that was from the shouting. He called for Leo over and over, but Leo would not respond. Once we had entered the cave, his voice had gone silent. We should find the wall and follow it, I suggested. The way we had been stumbling around, we could have been walking in any direction. We could have turned ourselves around completely. Huh? Stan asked. He had been lost in thought and worry. I said, I stopped short and held my breath. When I had turned my flashlight toward my friend, it lit up his familiar face and an entirely unrecognizable one over his shoulder. The pale face had two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, but it looked otherwise inhuman. The eyes were black pits sunk deep under its smooth brow, the nose a faint slitted ridge, the mouth a lipless circle lined by a circumference of needle-sharp teeth. The creature hissed at the light and vanished into the shadow dust. Its face was imprinted in my eyes, in my memory, like an old film negative. Stanley noticed my reaction, but did not ask what I had seen. He didn't want to know. I didn't want to tell him. He wouldn't have believed me. He would have thought me insane. So onward we pressed. Stanley and I stayed just within each other's illuminated spheres. We didn't know where we were going or from where we had come. If we were separated, I knew we would not find each other again. And yet, somehow, we had deceived ourselves into thinking we could find our lost brother. Yes, in that oppressive darkness, I had convinced myself that Leo was my brother too. I had to. Otherwise, I could not have justified searching that treacherous blackness for him. Stan set a heel on something that split and crunched. I saw it before he looked down. A miniature ribcage lay next to his foot, gray and veined with cobwebs. Mentally, I wrapped the ribs in soft, delicate skin, and it, to my horror, became a baby. I might have gotten sick right there, filling the cavern with the echoes of my retching, if Stan had lifted his foot any later. Beneath his heel was a partially flattened skull. 
Its face was elongated and punctuated by two curved teeth curling below the jaw. The creature had been a rabbit or a squirrel, some small, soulless animal that I needn't mourn. The poor thing had probably just gotten lost, I thought, but not for long. For as Stan took another step into nothingness, a similar skeleton appeared before him. I twisted left, and my own light revealed six more rotted critters scattered across the stone. Curiously, each skeleton was whole. One would think if a wild animal were lurking in here, devouring inferior creatures, it would tear them apart, dropping legs and arms and heads and spines wherever it finished sucking them clean. Stan suddenly clutched the collar of my jacket, his cold fingers locked inside my t-shirt. He shone his light past me at something beside me, a mountain of bones. It must have been twelve feet high. Two stands, I measured visually, as he approached it. Some of the bones were from larger mammals, bears, cats, wolves, and reminded me of human femurs and humeri. And they very well could have been. I didn't want to accept that possibility. I also didn't want to comprehend the size, power, and appetite of something that could devour such large creatures and stack their bones so very high. One of the bones moved, and it wasn't a bone at all. What I had perceived as the round ridge of a pelvis was a broad white forehead. The gap where I had thought a hip once rotated was a deep-set eye. The creature rose, naked from the mountain of bones, and I saw it was a man, or something very much like a man. The face I had seen before over Stanley's shoulder. The rest was pale thin and alien. It didn't appear to have any muscle, yet it moved with assured confidence toward us. It hated the light. I pointed my beam straight into its eyes, and it withdrew, but only slightly. Point your light at it, I commanded my paralyzed friend. He wouldn't or couldn't respond. The creature hissed angrily. Stunning white fangs flashed briefly beneath its upper lip. I shouted for Stan once more to direct his light, his one defense, at the thing moving to attack. I reached out to touch him, but another hand shot out of the dark and caught my wrist. I was yanked forward, practically somersaulting into blackness. I hit my shoulder on stone. My hand spasmed and opened. The flashlight rolled out of my fingers, out of reach. I was dragged by my jacket backward, my outstretched hand pulled farther away from the blinking flashlight on the ground. Stan still remained perfectly still, as if now in a trance. The creature advanced on him, and I was powerless to stop it. Slowly, he lowered his flashlight to his side, until it was pointed uselessly at the ground, making a small white circle beside his foot. Then his light jerked and flew into the air. That creature, now invisible, hissed again. I shouted Stan's name. A voice whispered in my ear to shush. I struggled against the arm that wrapped around me, against the hand gripping my collar. Shh, or it'll find you next, the voice behind me said. It was wet and distraught. The soggy emotion in it is what disguised it. It wasn't until he said, It's too late for Stan now, that I recognized Leo's voice. Stan's abruptly silenced shriek confirmed Leo's prediction. Stan's flashlight clattered to the ground within my reach. Leave it, Leo ordered, 
Sticky, wet sounds reverberated in the black bone chamber in front of us. Stan moaned weakly a few times, then eventually fell silent. There was some rustling, a dragging sound, a tinkle like a child's marimba, as the creature laid Stan's still form at the base of the mountain of bones. Then nothing. Let's go, I whispered. No, just you, Leo hissed back. His brother had just been murdered in front of him and Leo still wanted to wallow in this dark place. I snatched Stan's flashlight and shone it in Leo's face, hoping the bright light would wake him from whatever dream he thought he was in. Leo shrunk back, not because of my quick, aggressive movements or the sudden shock of a 9,000-lumen bulb in front of his face. He shrunk back because the light hurt him. It hurt his black, sunken eyes. It got me too, man, Leo cried hiding his veiny face from the beam of light. You gotta go before I... Before I... I shuffled back, keeping the light on him, but I was still on my back. It would have been impossible for me to move in time. Leo lunged forward. His hands gripped my wrists, and his momentum forced my arms to the ground, pinning me like a man doomed for crucifixion. His jaws locked on my collarbone right in the place where Stan's cold fingers had touched me before. Using the dirtiest move I'd learned behind the junior high school, I jabbed my knee into his groin. Leo's teeth released me, his hands loosened. I freed myself enough to leverage a full kick, this time connecting my heel to his throat. Leo choked, and I ran. I used a wall to guide me, and I could only hope the cave didn't fork somewhere back the way Stan and I had come. My fingers were rubbed raw by the stone walls when I finally emerged, but it didn't take nearly as much time to get out because we had moved so slowly on the way in. We really hadn't been that deep in the cave after all. Now I found myself again in the crevice. Escaping would have been no problem with two or three of us to boost and pull each other up, but I was alone now. The GPS still glowed on the ground nearby. I snatched it and ran to the shallow end of the crevice, in which I could stand with my head above the earth. Deep sobs echoed near the mouth of the cave. I moved quickly. I tossed Stan's flashlight and the GPS over the top so I could use both hands to grip the plants that disguised the fissure the day before. Leo emerged from the cave. His hair had begun to fall out already. He looked thinner. He stumbled toward me as I scrambled upward. He wasn't moving quickly, but there still wasn't enough time for me to escape his reach. I had my right leg over the edge, and I was just bringing up the left when Leo's hands wrapped around my boot. But to my surprise, he shoved it upward. Thanks to this final favor, I managed to roll away from the edge as Leo's teeth snapped at the air where my leg had just been. Sorrow lined his mouth, displaying emotion his eyes could no longer convey. He was fighting against himself, and he was starting to lose. I took the GPS and flashlight and fled. I followed the unmarked path that had brought us into the woods, hoping Leo wouldn't remember it somehow. Thank God my keys were still in my jacket pocket when I found our trucks. For all I know, Stan and Leo's trucks are still parked out there, probably sitting on flat tires and rotting away in the elements. As soon as I found a hotel, I checked myself into a room. I was too scared to care about the dirty trim and spots on the mirrors. 
I was too nervous to notice the lingering smell of hundreds of former guests' cigarettes in the fabric on the couch and mattress. I went straight to the bathroom, shrugged off my jacket, and tugged down the collar of my t-shirt. Leo's teeth had left a ringed bruise around my collarbone. Only in one corner had they drawn any blood. I thought I was okay. I traded the hotel room for the hospital room where they asked me about being suicidal. I checked in because I was tired and nauseous and scared. I wanted to be told there was nothing wrong with me. That's where I told them I didn't have the desire, but I did have the plan. A plan I would use if I needed, not wanted, to die. And as I've been relaying all of this, I've begun to worry the time is now. The bathroom lights are starting to hurt my eyes. I'm recording into my computer from the bathtub. My microphone is plugged into a preamp with enough voltage to power an electric fence. It's sitting here on the edge of the tub. I've accidentally splashed it a couple of times. It crackles like a taser. The water has gotten so cold, and I love it. I just wish I could reach the light switch. That's it. It's time. I'm just going to give the cord on the preamp a little tug. No. No. The water, like fire, need to get out. It's not working. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.